Have you ever felt small? You know, you felt like you weren't good enough, or you weren't smart enough, or you weren't pretty enough, or you weren't funny enough, or you didn't have enough money, or you didn't have enough experience, or you didn't have enough talent. I would imagine all of us have had at least one moment like that in life, a a day, a week, an hour, where we just felt like we didn't measure up to everything going on around us. Or maybe your experience with feeling small is a little different. It's, It's more like failing to read the final draft of your wedding invitation before it was sent out to more than 500 people. And having your Aunt Matilda call you a few weeks later to to let you know that that line on the invitation that said, we request your presence, didn't have a C-E on the end of it, but actually had a T-S on the end of it. Yeah, we don't really care if you come to the wedding, but please be sure that your gift gets here no matter what. Or maybe your experience with the invitation and feeling small was a little bit different than that. Because you cruised in to Fred Dorfman's black tie event at the ballroom downtown with your favorite Hawaiian shirt and your football cleats on because when you read the invitation, you thought surf and turf was the theme, not the menu. And maybe you walked in amongst all the tuxedos and felt a little small. We've probably all had a moment where we felt embarrassed in one way or another. But what if I were to tell you that that feeling small is actually good for you? Now, I'm not talking about the inferior kind of feeling small, where where you're not good enough. And I'm not talking about the embarrassing kind of feeling small. I'm talking about a different kind of feeling small. A kind of small that's a, a real gift to your life. It's the kind of small that that helps erase those awkward emotions when you are feeling embarrassed, and they erase them in almost a millisecond. It's the kind of feeling small that, that wipes away those thoughts of, I'm not good enough, and I'm not smart enough, and, and I don't have enough of something, so that thoughts like that do not defeat you or run your life. It's a kind of feeling small that's not just about helping your emotions or changing your attitude, but it's the gift of a smallness that actually brings satisfaction to your very soul. What in the world has that kind of impact? Well, look with me at Psalm 19, beginning with verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The psalm is written by David. David was the youngest son of Jesse, who was a farmer and a shepherd. David was an accomplished warrior. He was a talented poet and musician. And for 40 years, he served as the king over Israel and Judah. He was also a sinner. And he did some terrible things in his life. But even despite his sin... One thing that he understood from the time he was just a boy was the bigness of God. One night he was sitting out on a patio or a balcony, maybe looking out a window into the night sky. And on this night he was looking and he was realizing again, understanding again, the bigness of God, the holiness of God, the otherness of God. And he was also realizing how small he was. And as he often did, he wrote down his thoughts. And this is what he said. Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4. 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? David says, God, why do you even bother looking at us? Why do you even take a second glance? Let's see if I can help us get some perspective here, do a little mental gymnastics. I want to imagine that you're sitting in your kitchen at your kitchen table and and you take out a a paper plate and you put it on the table and then I want you to put a a really, really small whole peppercorn on that plate. Or for our younger generation, if you don't know what a peppercorn is, that's all right. Take a, a one nerd, one grape nerd from a box of nerds candy. It's kind of the same thing, okay? And put that on that paper plate. And then next to the peppercorn or the nerd candy, put a big, huge bowling ball right next to it. That picture is kind of the difference between Earth and our sun. Okay? So it's a pretty big difference in size there. All right, now keep all the same things, and we're going to expand a little bit. Okay? Still got the peppercorn, still got the nerd candy, still have the bowling ball. This time we're going to change the name tags. So now the the peppercorn and the, the nerd candy, it's now our sun. And then we have this big, huge bowling ball that is the brightest star in what's known as the Northern Celestial Hemisphere, Arcturus. And so now we have this difference, and now in this equation, the Earth is not even a speck in the picture. All right, same thing. Don't change. We still have our peppercorn, still have our nerd candy, still have our bowling ball. But we're going to change name tags again. We're going to expand a little more. And now we have this star Arcturus, and it's the peppercorn. It's the nerd candy. And now we have this bowling ball, and it's Betelgeuse or Beetlejuice. 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 Yeah, only three people got that. That's okay, but it was good. So we have Betelgeuse not even as the brightest star in the sky, but the ninth brightest star in the sky. But it swallows up all that we have mentioned before. In fact, the, the sun is, is just barely a speck, and the earth, <laughs> the earth isn't even a speck in this picture now. And you're on the earth. Are you feeling small yet? Good. This is the next thing David said, Psalm 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. This is great. David says, God, I am barely a speck in the universe, but you see me. God, I'm probably not even 10 million times smaller than a millimeter in the scale of the universe, but you see me and you know me and you care about me and you give my life meaning and purpose because I exist. That's not all God does. He he does something even beyond just see us as a speck. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's a song about Jesus. So before the foundations of the world, before you existed, 
God planned for Jesus to pay the ransom for the penalty of your sin. Now, there are some people that say that is horrible, that it's terrible. In fact, it's even been called cosmic child abuse. People like that would say things along these lines. Well, why would a loving God do something like that? I mean, that's, that's awful. None of that stuff is necessary. I mean, if God's really God, why can't he just forgive everybody and just be done with the whole thing? Or they might say this, you know, that stuff about the crucifixion and, and the blood and the death, all of that is just a cruel religious myth. And it's designed to scare people into joining your church or giving your church money. Okay, there's a lot of responses to statements like that. Let's just kind of give one response in general. So imagine that a little old lady backs into your car in the parking lot. She smashes out the headlight pretty good. So the officer comes over, and, and he's about to you know, handle the situation. And boy, the little lady, she's just pitiful. Bless her heart. I mean, she's just crying. She's apologizing. She is so, 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 so sorry. And it's, it's very genuine. And you lean over to the cop, and you're like, look, don't, don't write her up. You know, I, I, I got a buddy. He owns a body shop. He can fix that up for, for nothing. Hey, no harm, no foul. You, you just want to give compassion. You're, you're just wanting to give mercy. All right, same scenario, but this time the lady is not sweet and nice. She's loud. I mean, she is screaming. She's telling the police officer that you are the worst driver in the world, that you weren't even pulled into your space all the way, and the corner of your car was hanging out so the whole world could run into it, and it's not her problem that you are so incompetent. That compassion and that mercy doesn't feel as strong anymore, does it? You'd be okay with her getting a ticket or maybe multiple tickets at this point. All right, a similar scenario, except this time it's not the headlight. It's actually you she hits. She's barreling through the parking lot, going around the speed bumps, acting like everybody in the world should stop because she's coming in. And she hits you, and you're hurt so bad that they have to take you by ambulance to the hospital, and days later you actually die from your injuries. Now you're in the courtroom. Your family actually is in the courtroom, and and they're there in the courtroom for the trial of this lady. And during the court proceedings, some things are discovered. One, she was driving on a license that had been revoked six months ago. Her, her license had been completely taken away due to documentation from her doctor and from lawyers. She wasn't even supposed to be driving. But in that six months, after her license had been revoked and canceled, she had been ticketed three times for driving without a license. And on two of those times, the last two, she actually spent time in jail for continuing to disobey the law. So the judge, he looks over all the information, and he says, you know what? Sometimes bad things happen to good people. I mean, after all, she's, she's just a little lady. Case dismissed, ma'am, you are free to go. Now, your family is probably not going to be sitting in that moment going, that's, that's fair. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a fair way of handling that. Why? Because they would think that there should be some measure of justice that should happen. 
And why would they think that? Because every single person in this room has been born with a natural understanding of fairness and justice, of right and wrong. We can suppress it, we can ignore it, but it is there. We understand what it means for justice to be served in some measure, some shape, and some form. So, if someone like me or someone like you, who in terms of astronomy is barely a speck in the universe, if we understand justice, why would we think the owner of the universe would understand it less? Or maybe put another way, if we would demand justice for wrongdoing, why would we think that God would just blow it all off and say, no, big deal? Wouldn't that actually bring his character into question? I mean, that's what would happen with the lawyer in your family, right? They would, they would challenge his character, that he would look at this kind of evidence and, and just blow it off and ignore it. If God is trying to display himself to humanity and to you as the one true God of the universe, then wouldn't it make sense that he would have to have perfect justice? He would. And he does. And that's one of the reasons that we talk about Jesus. You see, the story of Jesus Christ is not just some nice religious myth. See, Jesus really lived on this earth. He really died on this earth. And Jesus didn't have any tickets. His license hadn't been revoked. Jesus never said anything wrong. He never did anything wrong. He never thought anything wrong. None of us can put that on our resumes. And that's why Jesus Christ is the perfect substitute for the penalty of sin. Because he is, was, and will ever free be perfect. In the death of Jesus Christ, God does two pretty amazing things. He gives complete evidence that he's the God of the universe because justice is dealt with. But then he also gives complete evidence that he is the savior of the universe because through the death of Jesus, he offers his love, his everlasting love, his everlasting grace to me and to you. Now you may be thinking, this is great stuff, Dal, but you might want to go back and read the verse that you're supposed to be preaching on because... This has nothing to do with the verse that you're supposed to be preaching on. Okay, let's go back and look at it. 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The greatest movie trailer in the universe is for the glory of God. The greatest commercial in the universe is for the glory of God. The greatest award show, the greatest trophy, the greatest theme song in the universe is for the glory of God. When I drive through the mountains with my windows down, I do not hear the wind whispering through the trees at me, glory to Tao in the highest. When I go to the beach out on the morning, I don't walk out on the beach and see that the seagulls have, have taken all the shells and, and spelled out across the beach, thank you, Dow, for a new day. When I go stand by the lake, fish don't jump out of the water and spit gold coins out of their mouth at my feet. Why? Because I am not holy, holy, holy. And neither are you. 
Whether you're a little old lady or a middle-aged businessman, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're an arrogant, rebellious teenager, or any of the rest of us, there is no human being who is holy, holy, holy. Creation does not wake up in the morning singing of our weight and our glory. But the sun and the skies and the clouds and the birds and the trees and everything else in all creation does wake up every morning and all day long they sing of the weight and the worth and the glory of the Lord Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. The word for glory here, it means weight. It means worth. There is absolutely no person, no place, no thing that has more worth, more weight, more glory than God. And God has chosen to display his glory in the trickling stream up in the mountains. And he has chosen to display his glory through the the pounding of a, a wave at the ocean. And he's chosen to display his glory through the the trembling roll of thunder. But the most supreme way that God has ever displayed and showed his glory is through the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul said to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, so creator God, He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of God in the face of Christ. So the chorus of creation song has always been something like this. Jesus, 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 sweetest name we know. He fills our every longing. So we keep singing about Jesus as we go. God has most supremely revealed his glory in Jesus. So we could even put it this way, that the gospel is the the most supreme picture of God's glory that he's given. And so creation is kind of the first verse of the gospel. And then you get to the chorus, and and it's all the stuff about the the weight and and the worth of God in Jesus. So creation actually helps us see the glory of God in such a way that then when we see the glory of the gospel, we go, oh, yeah, that connects. I see that. That makes sense. It's not just about the beauty of nature. It is also about the glory and the beauty of Jesus. I think sometimes we forget that this kind of declaring, it happens all day, every day. Now, I know at least one of you, sorry to, you know, throw you on the floor here, but at least somebody has said, oh, it's nasty out today. Sorry, your preacher will always beg to differ with you. You're alive. This is the day the Lord has made. Rain or shine, we rejoice in the Lord. This, this declaration creation is doing it all day long. Look what David goes on to say in verse 2. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, in her poem, Aurora Lee, gives this line, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. It takes an extreme amount of cultic religious faith 
to believe that the beauty of a sunset or the wonder of a shooting star across the night sky somehow just happens because of a bang one day. That takes a lot of faith. See, the reality is you might deny the crucifixion of Jesus. You might deny the resurrection. You might deny the ascension. You might deny the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ. But you have to work really, really hard. And I will say this, and you have to work in a hard way that's actually mean against your soul to deny that there is a creator. It takes work. It takes faith. And it's mean to you to deny there is a creator. See, day and night, without fail, the the world is, is singing and screaming these anthems that there is a creator. And what does that song sound like? What's part of those screams? Look at verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. <laughs> Wait a minute. David must have bumped his head on the balcony here. He, he's confused. He just got through saying that creation's telling and declaring and singing the glory of God. And then the very next sentence, he said, oh, no, they're not. <laughs> there, there, there's no words. Nobody can hear them. It sounds like he's contradicting himself, but he's not. What he's doing is he's saying the exact same thing, just in a different way. He's saying, man, there's, there are some screaming sounds of God's glory in creation. And then there are some silent sounds of God's glory in creation. Think of it this way. Imagine that you're up on a mountain plucking blackberries from a bush. That's a good thing. It's a very good thing. See, that would be a way for for you to enjoy nature. You might even, and they would taste good, and boy, you'd be having a great time. You would be able to sit, if you're with your family, say, boy, man, isn't this amazing how great this is. You'd be able to enjoy the glory of God in nature, sitting up on a mountainside, picking blackberries. But you could also be tempted to explain how the blackberry bush got there and how you got the blackberries in a a non-nature way. You might tell your family, oh, yeah, you know, this, this land has been in our family for more than 100 years. I tell you what, old, old Jeremiah Zamfir, he was grandpappy's second cousin. He planted these blackberry bushes right here. They've been growing up on this mountain ever since. Boy, we've been coming up here for decades picking these blackberries. It's a good story. Here's the thing. Your soul wants more and is more thirsty and more hungry than just a great history story about blackberry bushes. A.W. Pink writes this, The glorious sunset which human skill can neither produce nor adequately reproduce disappears within a few minutes. So that blackberry that you see up there, the blackberries you're picking on the mountain, put that in the category of the fact that you might be able to explain how that happened. But then consider Pink's quote. How do you explain a sunset? You you can't produce it. You can't reproduce it. So let's stay up on the mountain for a moment. You're up there with your spouse or your kids or your grandkids. Y'all pick the blackberries and you're sitting down and you're eating them and the sun is about to go down. And so y'all sit and y'all watch the sunset together. And as the sunset is disappearing, you say to your family, you know what? It won't look that way tomorrow night. It'll be completely different. It won't be the same. 
And there's no scientist that can produce what we just saw. There's no computer graphic expert that can reproduce in perfection what we just saw all over the sky. God just did that. And he does it without fail every night. Even when there's clouds, that goes on behind the clouds. We actually just saw a small glimpse of the glory of God. You see what just happened in that moment? You went from plucking blackberries to taking off your shoes. In that moment, you begin to see the bigness and the holiness and the otherness, the weight and the worth of God. That's what David's writing about. That's the song he's singing of. Verse 4. Their line, the lines of this song, they've, they've gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Because I lived there for four years as a student, because I lived there as a year as a, a husband and a father, I can very graciously say that Clemson is God's country. And so is Columbia. And so is Baton Rouge. And so is Athens and Tuscaloosa and Tallahassee. And so is Toronto. And so is North Korea. And so is Syria. Abraham Kuyper said this, There is not an inch of any sphere of life over which Jesus Christ does not say, Mine. If you're a Christian, sorry to just bust your bubble. You don't own anything. It's all Jesus's. And the same is true in terms of creation. There is not a single corner of the universe that God's glory does not touch. There is no way that there is a corner God's glory does not reach out to. But creation and nature itself are not the gospel. They're the glory of God, but they're not the specific gospel. And so Jesus commanded us to do what? To go. He told us to take the gospel and to go to the world. That we're supposed to, to take this great news about him. We're supposed to go around the corner, and then we're supposed to go to the farthest corner of the world. See, home missions is not Christianity. Home missions is part of Christianity. The gospel is to the uttermost parts of the earth. Think of it this way. If a handful of Middle Easterners had decided 2,000 years ago, you know what? We're just going to do home missions. Now, there's plenty of people right here in our community that we can reach. That's all we're going to do. If they have made that decision, you would not be a Christian. And this church would not exist. The glory of God misses nowhere. It goes to every corner. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to the command that Jesus has given us, is supposed to go the same. It's supposed to go everywhere. Now, I don't know if that means we need to send missionaries to Mars. I don't know. But I do know that we need to support the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for missions. And I, and I do know that we need to support and encourage people that go to, to Guatemala or Honduras or to, to South Sudan or wherever it is they're going in the world. The glory of the gospel is not supposed to stay in this room or stay in this community. It's supposed to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Why would Jesus command us to do that? Because somewhere in the world, there is a group of people that know the first verse. They know it. There's no way 
that they would stand out and go, yeah, there was just some bang. Yeah, we got here because a fish suddenly grew legs instead of fins. Now, see, they understand there's a creator, but they only have the first verse. And Jesus has called us to go with the chorus, the glorious great news about him, the gospel. David said these are the lines of God's glory that are going out. We send those same lines of glory out when we send the gospel out. Look what he says in verse 4 and 5. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. I love this. The sun, this, this picture of all these lines going out all over the world, the glory of God, and he uses the sun. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. The glory of God in creation is not sad, stale religion. That's not what it is. When the sun comes up in the morning, that's not sad, stale religion. It's, it's happy. It's joy. The glory of God in creation is designed to give us joy in God. It's designed to make us happy. Like David said, a groom standing at the front of the church. And the doors open in the back. And for the first time that day, he sees his beautiful bride. And he says, yes. I'm about to marry that gal right there. This is about to happen. I am happy. I'm excited. It's like the day of a wedding. It's like the beauty of a bride, the glory of God. It, it makes sense to make us happy. Or maybe it's like the Olympic runner who spent 10 years training for this, this one race. And they've finally got just a few steps left, and they know that they're going to win. And they throw their hands up in the air, and with great joy, they break that finish line. And they say to their hearts, yes, my dream has been accomplished. I, I've won. Or like we will hear her sing in just a few weeks, the words of this great song, Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning, Jesus to thee be all glory given. I know this probably is not grammatically right or what John F. Wade had in mind, but I can't help but always sing that going, yay, Lord, we greet thee. Not just like, oh, yeah, hey, Jesus, good to be here. No, yay. That's how we should begin the morning, right? If we wake up in the morning, we have a new day of life, there should be a sense of, of happiness and joy, even in the midst of our depression and our stress and our pain and our hurt because of the glory of God and because of Jesus. We can still say, yay, Thanks, God, again for showing me in creation who you are. Thanks for showing me the might of who you are. So here's what we know. God is, is big, and his glory has nowhere that it doesn't touch. It's gigantic. It's astounding. And we are small, and we really don't have any true glory. And whatever little glory we have, it's like barely a millionth of a speck in the universe. What encouraging sermon, Dal. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. How would that encourage us? How, how would that help our souls? How would that bring satisfaction to our souls? Look what he says in verse 6. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. When the sun comes up in the morning, it comes up all over the world without fail. And it goes down all over the world without fail. And there's not a single corner of the universe and a corner of our earth that it doesn't touch. Nothing's hidden. Listen, nothing is hidden from the glory of God. Your sin is not hidden from the glory of God. 
Your pride is not hidden from the glory of God, but your pain is not hidden from the glory of God. Your shame is not hidden from the glory of God. Your hurt, your stress, your depression, your grief, your agony, these things are not hidden from God. He sees and He knows. And the glory of God in creation says to your heart today, this is a God who sees you and knows you and loves you and He wants to really be your everything because He is everything. Nathan Mesmer is an intern for Youth for Christ. Youth for Christ is a a global ministry. They do a great job with evangelism and and missions. And he wrote this week about a meeting that he attended this week. And this is what he said about the people who were at this meeting that he was in. Jordan had come from Europe. Jenny just got back from Kenya that morning. And here I am introducing myself, never having been outside the United States, except for one trip to the Ikea in Canada coming from Washington State and feeling very, very small. He goes on. I not only felt small, I felt ineffective, like I wasn't making a difference for Christ, as these well-traveled, well-scriptured executives were somehow doing so much more for the kingdom than I was, a small-town college student at a Christian university who had been in the Pacific Northwest for my entire life. And then he says this. Certainly, these bigwigs were more important to God because they spoke three languages. And they'd been to 12 countries in three days, or they had cool Australian accents. He was feeling small. But then something happened in this meeting. Nathan quit plucking blackberries. And he took off his shoes, and he joined the conversation about the glory of God. And he went on to write this. I don't have to go overseas if I'm not called, and I don't believe I am at the moment. I don't have to speak five languages. I can barely speak English as it is. And I don't have to have the entirety of Psalm 119 memorized. I can still make a difference for the kingdom. Why? Because the glory of God in the beautifully lit face of Jesus Christ had captured his heart. See, he was a child of the king. He is a child of the king. And not just any old king, but the king of glory. The king that the heavens and the days and the nights and all of creation scream of every single day to us as well. So what is our challenge? Well, here's our challenge. Let's take our shoes off more. Let's enjoy what it means to be small so that our souls might be satisfied with the greatness of our King. Let's pray. Father, these are big things for us to think about, but they're not big for you. They're who you are. And so we ask now that you would help us to marinate on these things. That what we have sung about the wonders of your creation, that what we have heard about making sure that our our head and our heart and even our hands are connected, 
that this truth that you are undeniably not just the ruler of the universe, but you undeniably offer your love to us every second. Would you help these things to become more clear in our hearts and our minds? And would you help us as we engage, even in song now, to let the song of our life be more deeply that you have most glorified yourself in the person of Jesus. And let the gospel be this wonderful reason that we are happy and blessed. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.